Hello, and welcome to another podcast of U.S. History Repeated with Jimmy and Gene. This is Jimmy LaSalle. Today, we continue with part two of our coverage of the presidency of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and pick up with Jean Ann and Jeffrey Urban right where they left off. Jeannie, take it away. We're going to continue on with our conversation with Jeffrey Urban from the Franklin D. Roosevelt Presidential Museum and Library. FDR serves more terms than any other president. He is elected into office four times. One of the biggest reasons he continues to run is because the country is involved in World War II. Many considered the benefits of not having to change political leadership during such a critical time. FDR was immensely popular, and more so, there was no formal constitutional limit to how many terms a president can serve. There was merely a precedent that had been followed since the time of George Washington. We are going to have a number of different podcasts on most of the topics we will be discussing today. There's just too much to discuss to try to limit it to 40 minutes or to a few episodes. So be on the lookout for our episodes on Pearl Harbor, Japanese incarceration, World War II, and America and the Holocaust. With that being said, let's get back into our discussion with Jeffrey Urban. We left off talking about the New Deal and how the Supreme Court responded to New Deal legislation, and we pick up with the outbreak of the Second World War in Europe. For FDR, when World War II breaks out, while the United States is once again following a you know a policy of isolationism and and neutrality, I think he sees the writing on the wall that it's really only a matter of time. He hopes, you know, that American soldiers will not have to go and fight this war, but he sees that this is a very real possibility. For FDR, you know, if you look at the the policies while we're still neutral in name, we we have programs like cash and carry or the Lend-Lease Act, you know, after that one. But what actions does he take so that the United States would be ready for war if and when it came, which of course it does? Well, again, you're absolutely right. The, the America had no stomach for war. We had um, been in only the last year of the uh, First World War, and, you know, it was a horrendous, horrendous war. So uh, folks felt, you know, why are we getting involved over there? You know, Europe, they dragged us into the last World War. If they're going to have a war over there, let them handle it themselves. Most people at that time were still worried about putting food on the table, you know, consistently. So what Roosevelt does is that he sees the signs and symptoms of a world war. He sees Hitler as the big threat to freedom, democracy, and humanity, really, across the board. So he walks this fine line between preparing for war, but at the same time trying to stay out of it. So, for example, in 1938, he gives what's called the, the quarantine speech famous speech where he said, listen, if you've got troubles in your neighborhood, you need to contain those in your neighborhood. You know, Europe, I'm talking to you over there, you know, contain this guy before it gets out of, out of control here. He increases the number of aircraft uh, in the United States uh, Army Air Corps, and he wants to produce 10,000 of those a year so that we will be prepared uh, if that is the case. Then the next year, he ups that to 50,000 aircraft. Uh, just two months before the 1940 election, he starts the first ever peacetime draft. 
uh, you know, to uh, get uh, folks into the into the military and into training uh, so that we, you know, have a little bit of a jump on the game if that ends up occurring. Uh, you're right. He does cash carry. He does lend lease. The laws on the books at the time were that you could not sell weapons to belligerent nations. Didn't say you couldn't lease them. Couldn't say you couldn't trade them. So that's where lend lease comes in. Um, sets up the Atlantic Charter, right? Basically saying, hey, you know, with England, uh, you know, we're, we're, let's work together to stand up against tyranny, and we'll do that to maintain freedom of the seas, freedom of trade, no territorial expansion. He's really laying this out. And then he gives what I think is probably one of the most important speeches in American history, if not world history. That is what comes to be known as the Four Freedoms. Actually, a State of the Union address on January 6th, 1941. And then there he's introducing this idea of Lend-Lease. And then on page 17, he talks about, you know, if you had to go to war, remember, we're not in the war yet. But if you have to go to war, because this is January 41, we don't get into the war until December. If you have to go to war... You should fight for four important things. These four important things are freedom of speech and expression, freedom of religion, freedom from fear, and freedom from want. He says, I see a world built upon four essential freedoms. Now, keep in mind that at this time in the world, Hitler is driving the world narrative. And his world narrative is fear, death, destruction, murder, slavery, genocide. This is what he is forcing across the world, along with his Axis uh, allies. Everybody wanted to stop Hitler. Everybody wanted to, oh, yeah, we got to stop Hitler. We got to stop Hitler. But nobody was really asking the, then what? You know, if we stop Hitler, that's going to leave a vacuum. What comes next? So Roosevelt said, well, you know, I want to put this up against the narrative of death, murder, destruction, genocide, hatred. And my narrative for the world is a world built upon four essential freedoms. That's what we're going to want in the world after Hitler. And that becomes the basis of the United Nations. You really need to take a step back and say, what was Roosevelt offering? He was offering an alternative narrative to Hitler. He was offering the then what after the Nazis were defeated. Very, very important. For FDR, the United States is ready for war after Pearl Harbor. There is this feeling of you know, we have been attacked on our home soil. If you look at the relationship the political relationship between the United States and the empire of Japan throughout the 1930s, you see this, you know, worsening of tensions between the United States and Japan. Was there any sort of inkling that an attack was imminent? Uh, no, we, we knew we were having troubles with Japan. We knew that we were likely to have troubles with Japan, but Roosevelt really believed that he was doing everything he could to get that pot to simmer down. The, creation of the of the army and naval base at Pearl Harbor was built it was the largest military base outside of the United States at the time and the idea of that was to build this large military base to project power into the Pacific Rim to begin to get the Japanese to sort of think about what they were doing and you know if they went too far they may have to handle uh, you know uh, you know a problem uh, with the uh, United States we also were negotiating with the uh, Japanese uh, government uh, to ease tensions, to, uh, you know, calm things down, to simmer things down, unbeknownst to us and unbeknownst to the Japanese diplomats, Japanese military had already decided to attack Pearl Harbor. Yes. Uh, and the idea was to take Pearl Harbor, huge military base that was getting bigger and stronger every day. So they said, all right, let's get this thing before it gets to be too big. We'll knock the United States out of the war in the Pacific for a year. 
That will give us time to solidify our power. And by the time the United States is back on its feet, it will be too late. So he thought between the negotiations, between the trying to simmer things down and be and building up this base to be a strong military base, he thought he had taken the necessary precautions to eliminate the Japanese threat. The Japanese saw this as strike now or forever hold your peace kind of a situation. And when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, there was a huge outpouring of support for fighting against Japan. But Roosevelt saw Hitler as the, the real threat. Now, luckily, luckily, right, I say that in air quotes, Hitler decided he was going to declare war on the United States on December 11th. And so that's what got us into the war in Europe, which is the war that Roosevelt really felt was, was creating the most trouble and, and trauma in the world. So now we find ourselves attacked by Pearl Harbor. Everybody's running in that direction. Hitler declares war on uh, December 11th. And now we've got a two-front war going on. And uh, Roosevelt is able to rally the forces. Now, unbeknownst to him, as he was creating all this New Deal infrastructure, and half of the infrastructure in the United States was created during the New Deal. This is why it's all falling apart now. It's 85 years old. But by creating that infrastructure, those hospitals, those schools, those rail lines, those ports, the electricity, the waterworks, the roadways, all those things, he was inadvertently preparing the United States to become the arsenal of democracy. We had that infrastructure that we could then put into military production. And within something like 18 months of the attack at Pearl Harbor, the United States is supplying 80% of the, the munitions being used by the Allied forces. So wow. um, it was really a tremendous, tremendous uh, effort. For FDR, one of the probably the biggest blemish on his presidency is Executive Order 9066 with Japanese American incarceration. Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. By February of 1942, this executive order is signed and Japanese Americans living on the coast, the West Coast, are moved, forcibly removed from their homes inland. Now, we spoke prior to today and I had never heard that what ended up happening was not the intent of the executive order. And I found that very surprising that it isn't as well known. Now, not that it makes it better to kind of pass the buck, right? Because it happens under your watch. You have to own what, what happens. But can okay. you speak a little bit about Executive Order 9066? Yeah, it certainly is um, you know, a blemish on the Roosevelt record. And uh, you know, 120,000 Japanese Americans uh, were uh, rounded up. Uh, removed from their homes, uh, had to sell their businesses sometimes in as little as 48 hours, sometimes, you know, as large as, as long as a week. Uh, but nonetheless, completely and totally uh, their lives disrupted. And the way that this came about was you, you have, in order to understand 9066, you have to understand the attack at Pearl Harbor. Um, again, we had this huge military base. The Japanese struck out of nowhere. We were completely caught off guard. And quite frankly, the military was was humiliated, right? You know, hey, we've got it under control. We got this big dog out there at the end of the street out in the middle of the Pacific. You know, we're going to keep the, the Japanese under control. And the military was terrified of there being a second Pearl Harbor, you know, the second uh, massive attack like that. And so the po politicians on the West Coast, the local uh, and state politicians, had been anti-Japanese for a long, long time. Uh, many Japanese had come to the United States. They had uh, settled here. They'd raised families. And they became very successful in the citrus industry, the trucking industry, and the shipping industry. So there was a lot of local resentment, uh, you know, as there often is 
from immigrants coming in and doing better than than the locals. So there was a lot of ginning up from on the politicians on the West Coast that we need to do something. You know, we have to, you know, you know, these guys can't be trusted. We need to do something. And the military got behind that. And so there was this big debate that actually took place in Washington for probably, I don't know, eight to 10, 12 weeks or so. The military said, we've got to do something. We cannot have another Pearl Harbor. You know, we've, we've been embarrassed. We've been humiliated. This cannot happen again. The State Department didn't quite know what to do. They had been being told by the Japanese diplomats that they wanted peace, that they wanted you know, to calm these things down. We had intercepted the Japanese diplomatic codes. And so we were able to listen in to Tokyo when Tokyo would tell these these diplomats, here's what, you know, go to go to Washington and try to make peace. We heard that from Tokyo and then they got to Washington and they said, we want to make peace. So we felt like, OK, that makes perfect sense. What we didn't know was that the Japanese military had decided to attack and didn't even let the, the diplomats know. So the diplomats were negotiating in good peace and uh, in, in good faith. So the State Department was perplexed. You know, what do we do? We don't know who to trust on this. The Justice Department said, there's nothing we can do. These are not the people that were flying the planes. These people have done no crime. J. Edgar Hoover produced a series of maps within 48 hours. He had uh, 1,212 Japanese Americans who they considered to be worth watching and potential troublemakers taken into custody. So he felt that he had the, the thousand troublemakers, you know, well under control and such. So there's this debate that goes on. The military says we got to do something drastic. The State Department doesn't really know what to do. The Justice Department, the FBI says, well, we really can't do anything because these aren't the folks that did this. And Roosevelt needed to 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 uh, to do something. So he, he uh, issues Executive Order 9066, which allows the military the power to create exclusion zones. And in the mind of Roosevelt, these exclusion zones are things like seaports, airports, communication centers, oil depots, important rail lines. Yeah, it makes sense to keep people out of those. So, yeah, if you want to keep people out of those, let's, you know, you've got the power to do that. But what the military did, again, being ginned up by these politicians on the coast and their own paranoia of a second Pearl Harbor said, well, we can create exclusion zones. How about we just create two? One will be the entire West Coast of the United States and the other will be a portion of the southern uh, part of the United States. And that's how this comes about. So 120,000 people rounded up, moved out. Uh, put in uh, basically camps, uh, concentrating them in these camps, not the same kinds of concentration camps as the Nazis were using, but certainly concentrating folks out of their communities so we could keep an eye on them. And that's what ends up uh, happening. Mrs. Roosevelt speaks out against this. She says, we can't do this. This isn't right. The president's got a two-front war on his hands. He says, listen, you know, I, I can't have you talking about this out in public. And so she says, okay, I won't talk about it out in public, but she takes up the cause behind the scenes. She visits the camps, lets the folks know, hey, listen, you know, we're working on this. You know, we're, we're with you. She arranges furloughs for college age kids that were in the camps to go to colleges on the East Coast where there was less anti-Japanese uh, uh, sentiment. That's the way it stands. Now, you could argue, well, Roosevelt's commander in chief, he could easily have said, hey, that's not what I meant with this executive order. But he doesn't say that it becomes one of the biggest blemishes on uh, not only his record, but on America's record on uh, civil liberties. Now, luckily from that, we're able to learn that in a national crisis, the uh, first thing that's attacked is whatever the target is for whoever's creating the problem. The second thing that tends to be attacked 
are our civil rights. So we need to be careful about those. And we saw the same thing after 9-11, you know, with suddenly the crackdown on uh, uh, flying and, you know, the, the cable guy was reporting what was going on, you know, these sorts of things. So we have to be careful about not losing our civil rights in the effort to protect our civil rights. Yeah. And for, for Japanese Americans, restitution is not made for a very long time. And a, a lot of that restitution ends up being symbolic. I mean, you, you can't put a number on what was taken away and what was lost, but it doesn't happen for a very long time. For the United States, I, I agree. It, it's, I think it's one of our darkest chapters of what we do to American citizens here in our own country. For FDR, when he does get involved in the war, his relationship with Churchill, they come to power in their respective countries around the same time. And eventually when the Soviet Union joins on the side of the Allies, you know, what is the relationship like with Churchill and Stalin? Well, people uh, look back, oh, the big three, the big three, right? Like these guys were buddies and chums. And to some degree they were, but you have to keep in mind that you couldn't ask for three more ideologically different perspectives, right? You've got Winston Churchill, who's heading an empire. You've got Franklin Roosevelt, who's heading a democracy. And you've got Stalin, who's heading a dictatorship. So these guys had vastly different views of the way things should be done and the way the war should be should be run. It's that old expression of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You know? And that's really the way these guys kind of came through. Now, he had a much closer, FDR had a much closer relationship with Churchill. Um, obviously, we speak the same language. We, uh, they were our mother country, so much of the culture of the two countries are the same, not so much with uh, with Stalin. And so uh, Roosevelt's relationship with Churchill was, was pretty cozy, pretty collegial, pretty friendly, and generally pretty on target with each other. Stalin was always kind of the third uh, wheel in that uh, relationship. And Roosevelt believed that he could use his Roosevelt charm, uh, you know, going all the way back to his mom, you know, was, you know, showing him that confidence of if you just, you know, be yourself, you can get anything done. He believed that he could bring Stalin along. I think Roosevelt recognized early on that England was a declining country and that the by the time this war was going to be over, if we won, uh, the United States would be a world power and the Soviet Union would be a world power. So I think that Roosevelt understood that he was going to have to work with Stalin. I think he believed that he could get Stalin to soften some of his views. Two people on the block here that are running the show. It's you and me. Let's work together. Of course, Roosevelt doesn't live long enough to you know, try to work that plan out. He's able to work it through the war. Uh, but then Roosevelt dies in April. And um, Stalin takes a bit of an advantage of that. And um, you know, Truman comes in completely unaware of what's going on in large measure. Stalin begins to take advantage of the, the end of the war. Yes. For... FDR, within World War II, the Holocaust is also occurring. The world doesn't really know the full extent of what's happening at first, but you can't, there's certain things you can't hide, right? You can't hide the transports of people from cities all throughout Europe, you know, where are they going? You can't hide the fact that Hitler comes out and says what he wants to do in Mein Kampf. FDR, you said, read it in English. He also read the translated from German version. He's very much aware of Hitler's views, especially when it comes to, to the Jewish population of Europe. How did FDR respond to the Holocaust and why wasn't more done to help the Jewish people? Well, that, that's a great question. You know, the, the term Holocaust doesn't really come about until like, after the war. 
So, uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't in any way diminish what was going on during the war. Dribs and drabs of this stuff was, was coming out. And as, as you say, uh, Roosevelt had, had read Mein Kampf in the original German. So he understood what a, a diabolical evil person uh, Hitler was. But Hitler was the head of, uh, you know, of Germany. The word gets out of what he's doing and moving people around and arresting political enemies and, you know, eventually targeting specifically uh, European Jews. Roosevelt issues statements condemning this. He directs the State Department to be as liberal as possible in terms of letting refugees in. State Department drags their feet on this and are very tight about the quotas and things. Roosevelt does as much as he can politically uh, to bring attention to this and to get aid and, and uh, help to, to the Jews of Europe. Now, the argument is, well, why didn't he do things sooner? And Part of the reason is that there just wasn't uh, political support for it. There wasn't public support for it. Uh, the United States then, as it is now, had a lot of anti-Semitism in it. Most people, again, had this idea of isolationism. It's a German problem. It's a Jewish problem. You know, there's nothing we can do about it over there in Europe. And keep in mind, you know, really, what could Roosevelt do, right? Not until after a four-year war that we finally defeat Hitler. And that was Roosevelt's emphasis. He believed if we can defeat Hitler, uh, we can bring about this war, or the, this world based upon his four fundamental freedoms. So his main objective was end the war, end Hitler, and we will end the death camps. And he doesn't start the uh, War Refugee Board until 1943. We understand that that's very late in the war, right? Because the war only goes on until 1945. At that time, nobody knew how much longer the war was going to go on. So we look back and say, well, he didn't start until the very end. Uh, he didn't know it was the very end. It could have been, you know, still in the beginning or the middle for all he understood. But once the War Refugee Board uh, is brought about, it puts a lot of pressure, a lot more pressure on the State Department. Uh, Roosevelt had also uh, convened two international conferences to try to get other countries to take in more refugees. So he did what he could, but it was really the War Refugee Board of 43. But of course, by that time, you know, the damage had been done. You know, many, the, the, yeah. the door had closed. It's a question that is going to haunt historians for decades to come, as it has for the, for the past decades. Why didn't he do more? He did what he thought he could do, given the political support, given the public support, and given the fact that, you know, America's hands were tied. You know, it, I mean, what could we do we, we, uh, other than to bring about uh, regime change? Yeah. I mean, if you look at, I mean, with like all things, it's it's certainly a progression of, of violence against the Jews of Europe. And you look at events like Kristallnacht in 1938. This makes national news here in the United States in the same time that you have midterm elections, in the same time that you have the 20th anniversary of, you know, World War One. So you, you've got all of these things happening and it's national news and it's kind of pushing those other things out. And it also becomes a factor of how do you get people to continue to care about a particular issue. And and like you said, anti-Semitism was not something that was strictly in Europe. It was very much so alive and present in the United States. And I think you also have to consider the Nazi propaganda machine, that if the United States had spoken out in very strong words about what was happening, 
one of the first things they would have done is, well, look at what you do to Black Americans in the United States. I mean, at one point in time, you could go to a number of cities within the South and buy a postcard with an image of somebody hanging from a tree, dead, and no one thought anything of it. So you 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 have these two dualities, something happening here in the United States, and then you have the horrors of what was happening to the Jewish people in Europe. And so I think it it becomes, you know, this double-edged sword for him that politically his hands are tied. And it's also, and, and I think if you look, I think there isn't a historian alive who can point one thing and said, if we had stopped that, right. the Holocaust would not have happened. Right. And what, what were we going to do? Paratroop and, you know, hundreds of, of police behind enemy lines to take over Germany to do it. And that's what we were trying to do. We were trying to stop Hitler. We were trying to move in that way. But you've also got very prominent Americans like Henry Ford, Tom Watson, and uh, Lucky Lind- Lindbergh, right? Uh, who uh, Lindbergh actually got an award from the Nazi uh, Luftwaffe. And these guys were saying, well, you know, Hitler's kind of understood. You know, it's not that. So you had very prominent Americans that were you know, raising some questions about this as well. And this all needs to go, uh, you know, into the mix. You know, again, Roosevelt believed that in Germany first, we, we've got to get rid of Hitler, we get rid of Hitler, and we will end this. He also had the policy of unconditional surrender. He pushed for that. And the reason for that was he wanted a decisive end to the war. He saw that the, the end of the First World War was kind of wishy-washy, and it was sort of undefinitive. And Hitler was able to use this resentment and this sort of incompleteness to rise to power. He, he played off of those emotions. So what Roosevelt wanted to do was to defeat the Nazis decisively, unconditional surrender, so that there would be no Nazis left to have to negotiate with or to be left around to stir up the embers for uh, the Third World War. In some Jewish communities, Roosevelt was seen as a hero for bringing about the end of the war. Others... Uh, not so much for um, you know this idea that he could have done more and should have done more. It's a debate that just is going to have to be played back and forth. Yeah, I agree. Roosevelt dies just before the end of World War II in Europe, of course. He dies in April of 1945. Do you think he would have utilized the atomic bomb had he not died before the end of World War II? I do believe he would have done that. I mean, obviously, it's, it's impossible to know. He had spent uh, three and a half years and $2 billion, 1930s, billions, building the atomic bomb. The idea was to uh, get an atomic bomb before Hitler did. And certainly, if you had a bomb, uh, and again, you got to go back, as you pointed out, understand where you are, right? You are in a global world war here. There are 10 million people dying every year in the war across the world. So the idea is to end this war, end this bloodshed, end this death. And if you have a bomb, that by dropping a bomb or two or three can end all of this, certainly you're going to look to, to do that. Also, politically, if you have a bomb um, and you don't use it, thinking, you know, it could have ended uh, some casualties, they have estimated maybe as million as many as a million casualties uh, in a land invasion of, um, of the Japanese islands. So, you know, how do you justify that to someone who loses their son or daughter in this invasion, say, wait a minute, you had a bomb that you could have dropped that might have ended this whole thing? You know, you could have wiped out a city and ended this war, but instead, you sent a million American lives to be uh, lost. Also keep in mind that the estimates were as high as 5 to 10 million on the Japanese side. 
uh, if he had to go in and uh, invade uh, Japan. So I think Roosevelt saw the calculus in that. I think uh, you know, just the pure numbers, the pure need to end the war. Now, he never lived to see the body of an operation. Um, but I do believe that Roosevelt would have certainly considered using it and would probably have used it. When visitors come to the FDR Presidential Museum and Library, what do you discuss about his legacy? Wow, that's a great question. You know, he's got so much legacy. I think the biggest thing is that we live in the world that Roosevelt helped to create. Being challenged right now on the global world scale, right, the, the new world order that came about at the end of the Second World War is beginning to, I don't know, I don't know if I want to say collapse or crumble, but it's certainly beginning to show some signs of wear and tear. So I think the, the thing to understand is that, you know, he ended uh, the Second World War. He rebuilt the American economy and, you know, much of the, the rest of the world enjoyed the relative peace that came about from that. The world that he created, you know, is the world that we live in. So that's the biggest thing. And of course, he didn't do this by himself. He had Mrs. Roosevelt. We always want to make sure that the contributions of Mrs. Roosevelt are expressed uh, in this as well. So he, he faced the two greatest crises of the 20th century. Um, not just American crises, but world crises, the global economic depression, and the, the global world war. And he brought those to a relatively quick end and a relatively successful end. I think that's the legacy that we really want them to, to understand. Also, I think the legacy is that he understood that government can do good things, the government should do good things, but it needs to be done in measured amounts. And we all have a responsibility to do that. It is our civic obligation to work together to, to solve these problems. Government cannot do it alone. Now, the solutions aren't ever going to be perfect. They're not ever going to be all-encompassing. But we certainly need to work together to, to bring about a better life, not only for ourselves, but for people around the world. They were futurists. Where do we want to be? What kind of a world do we want to live in? We want to live in a world based upon four fundamental freedoms, freedom of speech and expression, freedom of religion, freedom from fear, freedom from want. So how do we all work together to, to bring that about? That's what we want folks to understand. Without a doubt. I mean, if you could think if you look at the work that Eleanor Roosevelt does after her husband's death, they, they often refer to that as her second act. Her work is still helping people around the world today. And so I think that that's a big component of, of what she was about and what they were about. But even during the first act, she was on stage. She just happened to be behind the scenery. So everything that Roosevelt was doing, President Roosevelt was doing through the Great Depression and through the World War, Mrs. Roosevelt had a pretty active hand on that as well. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. No, 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 absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you said that because it's true. She she was not your typical first lady. I think she was really one of the first ones to carve out a very significant role and to do a lot of good. And she wasn't afraid to to say she disagreed with things. I don't think she was afraid to go against the grain. It was not commonplace for women, especially during that time period. And she remained an essential political figure up until her death. I mean, even President Kennedy, when he was looking to get elected, he needed Eleanor Roosevelt's support. You know, so she becomes incredibly important politically, for sure. What are some of your favorite pieces or some of the most interesting pieces at the museum? Well, it's a great question. We have uh, President Roosevelt's uh, White House desk, the Oval Office desk. And that's really cool because usually when you go to a, a presidential library, those desks are reproductions. But this is the actual desk that he used through the entire 12 years of his presidency. It's the same desk that Herbert Hoover used for his 
the four years of his presidency, and President Truman used it for eight or nine months during the first months of his presidency. So it served three, you know, three American presidents. And to think of the history that was made at that desk from Herbert Hoover all the way and, and you know, the, the dealing with the opening stages of the, uh, the Great Depression to Roosevelt creating the New Deal, the United Nations, the creation of the atomic bomb to Harry Truman bringing about the actual end of the Second World War, ushering in the United Nations, ushering in the Cold War, ushering in the atomic age. That is a an incredibly important artifact that a lot, a lot of history uh, has happened in. Literally, when you stand there, you can feel the history emanating from that desk. Uh, we also have uh, President Roosevelt's automobile that he was able to use, even though he didn't have the use of his legs, uh, had, had, had hand cranks, so he was able to drive that vehicle by himself. And this gave him an incredible sense of freedom and mobility that he didn't have. And then we also have, we have 17 and a half million pages of documents in the, wow. the Roosevelt archives, which would be a stack 16 times as tall as the Washington Monument, if you stack them all on top of each other. Um, we also have uh, 3 million pages of Mrs. Roosevelt's papers, which uh, are her papers as both First Lady and uh, in her career uh, as what Harry Truman called First Lady of the World after that. So to be able to go into those documents and look at, at these primary sources firsthand and you know see what these folks were thinking, see what these folks were doing, see who these people were meeting with, uh, it's just an incredible, incredible thing. And unbelievable. I, I can't thank you enough for your time and for your, your expertise. Thank you for joining us. And I hope that our listeners, if you're ever near Hyde Park, you will go and see the FDR Presidential Museum and Library. I went many, many years ago when I was in elementary school. My parents took me and I still remember walking around and really it, it's incredible. You've got to come back. We've done some major renovations since you were last year. And folks, if you can't get here uh, directly, please visit our website. We've got a virtual tour there. We have all kinds of resources there. Much of the things that we've talked about here today, you can dig into in more depth and detail. Thank you, Gina. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's so interesting to me how some presidents are remembered. Some are tainted historically by certain actions they took. Others, despite blemishes or negative actions during their tenure in office, are treasured. FDR's legacy is an interesting one. And like all presidents, you have to discuss the good with the bad. Far too often, small sound bites either elevate someone to superhuman status or it completely tarnishes their reputation. FDR dies during his fourth term as president and just before the end of World War II in Europe. By the spring of 1945, FDR looked worn and had appeared to age considerably by the time he returned from the Yalta Conference. He went to rest at his home in Warm Springs, Georgia, in the hopes of recuperation before he needed to be at the founding conference for the United Nations. On April 12th, while sitting for a portrait, he complained of a headache and collapsed. He was brought to his bed and doctors were brought in. He died later that day of a cerebral hemorrhage. FDR was not alone when he died. He was with his longtime mistress, Lucy Mercer, and two of his cousins. Lucy Mercer was the former private secretary of Eleanor's. It was a huge blow to Eleanor to find out that he had rekindled his affair with Lucy Mercer, and even more so that her own daughter, Anna, who was her father's secretary, arranged their meetings. 
Eleanor Roosevelt was at an event and was brought back to the White House where she was told of her husband's death. Eleanor Roosevelt was at an event and was brought back to the White House where she was told of her husband's death. She later informed Harry Truman that the president had died. FDR, the beloved president, was dead at the age of 63. Vice President Harry Truman took the oath of office that same day in the White House in the cabinet room. When telling him of the news, Eleanor Roosevelt said, Harry, the president is dead. He asked if there was anything he could do for her, to which she replied, Is there anything that we can do for you? For you are the one in trouble now. Truman was FDR's third vice president, and the two only met a handful of times. FDR's body was brought back to Washington, D.C. by train. Thousands of mourners lined the train route to pay their respects to the fallen president. The longest serving president in U.S. history did not lie in state in the Capitol upon his own request prior to his death. FDR made it clear that he did not want to be lying in state in the Capitol. The high numbers of American soldiers dying in war along with the sacrifices American citizens were making daily at home, made the premise of an over-the-top ceremonial funeral seem inappropriate. Only a few of his children were present at his funeral for the same reason. His sons fighting overseas thought it was the greatest way to honor their father, to continue on and to see the job through to the end of the war for their father, for their commander-in-chief. His death came as a shock to the American public, but those around him were aware of his failing health. The first lady was brought to Georgia on a military plane in order to accompany her husband's body back to the nation's capital. A military procession took the president's coffin from the train station to the White House, where a simple funeral was held in the East Room of the White House. There was a funeral procession through the streets of Washington that were attended by some 300,000 onlookers. Before the coffin was placed back on the train for his final trip to Hyde Park, FDR had selected his exact burial spot. He had written that his body was to be buried where the sundial stands in the garden. He designed a simple white marble monument that was built to his specifications, written simply as his name, and the years that he lived. Eleanor Roosevelt was buried there as well, after her death in 1962. When FDR died in office on April 12, 1945, Winston Churchill wrote, It is cruel that he will not see the victory which he did so much to achieve. The war in Europe ended in May of that year. The war with Japan ended in August. Thank you for listening to U.S. History Repeated with Jimmy and Jean. Tell your friends about our podcast and where you learn all this great stuff about U.S. history. Follow us on social media and get onto our email list to learn about special events. They're coming up again. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon. LaSalle out.